Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks and welcome to Grass Talk Radio. You know, if you want to sound like a real idiot, and I, I think I'm pretty good at that at times, let me give you some hints on what to do to make you sound like a real idiot. Here's something you can do. When you're in a recording studio and um, you've been called in and your band is cutting this little demo or working on an album or something, and then you're all back there in the control room listening to the playback and the engineer is sitting there and maybe the producer and the other band members, here's, here's how you can sound like a complete idiot. Start talking about what they need to do to the compression ratio when you don't really know what you're talking about. You're going to get the engineer look over his shoulder at you and just shake his head. You know, what I'm saying is some of this stuff involved in recording music and live sound reproduction gets highly technical. There are a lot of terms that get thrown around by musicians that some of them use the terms correctly. Some use them incorrectly. Some use the wrong term. Some don't really fully understand exactly what they're saying. You know, if I say, Hey, you know, uh, put some more reverb on that signal. Do, am I really talking about reverb or am I talking about delay or am I talking about echo? You know, these, these are actually different things. So I know I'm treading in um, dangerous waters here to be talking about a highly technical subject. But what I want to do, the purpose for this, this episode is to just mention some of the, the terms, the audio terms. And when I say audio terms, I may mean the, uh, you know, a term used to describe the sound wave itself in the air the natural sound, or I may be talking about the electrical signal that is carrying the information, which will ultimately be turned into a sound. Cause a lot of times these terms get applied to both worlds. You know, if you're sitting in a room playing your guitar, you're creating sound. Some of these effects take place in that real world sound environment. For example, if I went outside and clapped my hands and the sound wave went and bounced off the barn and came back to me, I would hear an echo. And that happens, you know, when you play in your bathroom or in your living room, you know, there are echoes. So there are sound effects and there are very specific terms that describe these. But as you get into electronic and electrical signal processing, you're going to use a lot of the similar terms, but might have a slightly different meaning in, in the electrical world. Now, some of you may be going, Oh my God, this, what, I don't want to know about this. I play bluegrass. We only play acoustically and you know, I'm, I'm not into home recording. You know, we're not, I'm not producing a record. We, you know, and you might think this stuff just doesn't apply to me, but I will say, I'm going to try to make the case that it's good to have a little basic knowledge of some of these terms that are thrown around, even if you don't ever use them, even if 
you don't ever use them in your vocabulary, you may understand them a little better. Because you can just be a banjo player who just plays the banjo. But I can guarantee you, at some point, you're going to either be recorded or be put on a stage with a microphone in front of you. And maybe somebody else is totally responsible for, you know, what the audience hears and what the performers hear through the monitors. You may have nothing whatsoever to do with that, but you're still going to hear these terms. And you may want to pipe up and put your two cents worth in about, you know, I, 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 I can't hear myself or, you know, there, I, there's this hum, I'm hearing this hum, you know, well, can you describe those things? You know, do you know the terminology well enough to at least engage passively or actively in conversations? Look, all I'm saying is in the music world, this stuff gets thrown about a good bit, you know, with musicians, recording engineers, sound, live sound men type, you know, PA operators. So, you know, I just think it's, you shouldn't think, well, I just play acoustic music, so none of this applies to me. So I'm going to just roll through in as, and I'm going to try to stay as untechnical as I can and try to describe some of these things, some of these words we hear. And one of the most basic ones is the word volume. You know, if you put a record on your old record player, there'll be a volume control knob on it. And what does that really mean? It means, obviously, you already know this, you know, every little AM radio has a volume control. Your iPod, you know, when you're playing an MP3 has a volume control. So you know that volume is some sort of measurement of how loud or how soft the sound that it's producing is. So that's what volume is, but volume can be measured in a number of different ways. A volume measurement may just be some arbitrary scale of zero to 10, you know, like the classic guitar amp, zero to 10 as you know, volume, or it could be a more technical measurement of voltage. What is the voltage being applied to the speaker or being sent down the microphone cable or, you know, so volume could be a measurement measured in volts. It could also be measured in this thing called decibels. And that this, if I talk about decibels, it's going to get really crazy here. So I'm not going to try to explain decibels except to say that it is a relative measurement scale, much like that, you know, zero to 10 volume scale where it's, you know, like 10 what? for what you know decibels are sort of like that it decibels is a measurement that compares two sounds sound a and sound b and how much louder is a than b so it's kind of a relative sliding scale now it is standardized sometimes in audio equipment to certain voltage levels and stuff, but I don't, I don't want to get into all that technical stuff. I just want you to know that volume can be expressed in these sort of just random scale numbers like zero to 10 or in voltage or in decibels or in VU units or volume units, which is a, a lot of times you'll see meters on mixers that say VU, 
and that's volume units, and that's you know that's sort of an internally calibrated voltage measurement. So there's a lot of ways you can express volume, you know, and the audience has has you know verbal descriptions of volume, you know, that's painfully loud or you know, I can't hardly hear those guys, you know. There's a lot of ways to express volume. But you need to remember that volume refers to the total sound and or the total signal. But the but the the signal itself has two components. You have the the desirable information, the music, and then you have the noise. So if I was playing a guitar in a room and it was an absolutely perfectly quiet sound recording laboratory type setting where no sound was produced except the guitar, you would have 100% signal and zero noise. But if on the other hand, somebody turned the air conditioning on and you began to hear a rumble in the background of the fans blowing and so on, well, now I've introduced some noise. So noise is just undesirable sounds and signal is the desirable portion. You know, when I'm recording this, I want my voice to be recorded, but I don't want the dog outside barking at the mailman to be recorded. That would be the noise or just the wind blowing. That's the noise. And the signal is the desired stuff. So something you'll hear talked about sometimes is the signal to noise ratio. And it'll often just be written as S slash N signal to noise ratio. Typically speaking, you will have better sound reproduction, better sound recording, better sound amplification if you have a high signal to noise ratio. In other words, if you're up there on the on the bandstand and you got some mics set up and there's an air conditioning vent blowing down onto the band and that noise is being picked up by your PA system and being amplified well, you're going to have a larger portion of noise in that signal to noise ratio. In other words, the more you can eliminate the noise, the cleaner sound you're going to have. But I think a lot of people, uh, you know, forget about the fact that it's, it's very different in the recording studio world than it is in the live performance world, because you can do everything in your power to keep the sound of the air conditioning vents from coming through your microphones and through your mixer and through your amplifiers and through your speakers. But how are you going to affect it in the room? You know, some guy sitting in the back of the room, he still hears the air conditioning. So, you know, part of tweaking your signal to noise ratio is have plenty of signal. That way you don't have to turn the volume up so high. In other words, getting closer to your microphones, good microphone positioning will improve your signal to noise ratio. A lot of bands who play with the one mic setup will have not as good of a signal to noise ratio because the farther away you are from the microphone, the farther up you have to turn the volume or the gain of the volume. 
And so that brings up the air conditioning and the clattering of the plates and the footpaths on the floor and all that noise is also amplified. But the closer you get to the microphone, you can turn the volume down and you're turning down the volume of the noise too. So that improves your signal to noise ratio. So that's enough about signal and noise and volume. So you, now you got some volume, hopefully lots of signal and not a whole lot of noise. And so you have a decent signal to noise ratio. So what else can now be done to this? I'm just going to refer to it now as the signal. You know, if, if it's one microphone, it's what is coming down that, that wire to be further processed and ultimately turned into sound at speakers and at eardrums in the audience. So what all could be done to this thing? I talked about this some in, in the episode. Well, I did a couple of episodes on playing over other people's PAs and operating your own PA system. And I briefly touched on some of these things and I use some of these terms, but I'm just going to reiterate them here. One thing that can be done to the electrical signal that is, you know, being captured by microphones or a group of microphones and then being blended together through the mixer is tone and tone simply refers to the, the frequency spectrum. Like, am I hearing more bass or more treble? You, you've all seen the little, you know, simple stereos will often have a tone knob that says bass treble and you just turn it back and forth and that varies the 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 volume based upon the frequency so if you put it on the bass side you know you'll hear lower frequencies and you turn it towards treble and you hear higher frequencies your car radio has that sometimes they'll separate it out and they'll have a bass knob and a treble knob well this can be carried to great extremes and you can have many different tone controls and that becomes what's known as EQ where you've got a whole lot of frequencies bands from super low to super high and you can individually control them all so that's what people call EQ which means equalization so tone is just a, a very simplified version of EQ so you can alter how strong or how weak sounds or their electrical signals are based upon their frequency. So that's definitely something you can do to improve your sound. Now you can also alter the frequency by mic placement, you know, where you put that microphone in relation to your guitar or your bass is going to change that original signal. So that's a great place to start. If you want to change the EQ or change the tone of your signal is to start at the, at the root of it, start at where the signal is generated. It could even start at the instrument itself and how you play it. You know, if you play your banjo near the bridge, you're going to get a more trebly sound than if you play it near the end of the fingerboard. So you and your instrument have an effect on tone so does microphone placement. And I remember watching, I think it was probably the first time I was ever in a recording studio session. And, you know, it's kind of wide. I didn't really know what was going on. You know, I, 
I knew you went in these rooms and, you know, they set up microphones and they recorded and they had lots of gear and lots of knobs and stuff. But I didn't know much at my first ever recording session. But I remember the engineer, when he came around to me and I was going to play mandolin, all I was playing was rhythm mandolin along with some guy's demo. And they had a, they had a booth and the guy was in a booth, uh, had a banjo player back in the booth and had some other musicians spread around. And I was in a vocal booth pretty much sealed off from the rest of, of the musicians and they stuck me in there probably so that if I played a bunch of bad notes, they could easily delete me. I don't, I don't know, but all I had to do was sit there and play the rhythm, play mandolin chords and rhythm. Oh, you know, I'm listening on headphones. So the guy comes in and he starts positioning this microphone in front of my mandolin. And the thing that I remembered so vividly is he said, all right, play, play some chords. Just start playing some rhythm. And so I did, and he didn't stick the microphone in front of me. He got down on his knees and he turned his head so that one ear was in front of my mandolin and he started moving around and then he stood up and he stood over here and he put his ear up near the peg head and down the fingerboard and to the bottom of the mandolin, to the top of it. He was moving his ear around and then he stood up and took the mic stand and put the mic in a certain spot. And walked out. So he was using his ear to, to listen for the tonal differences in the space around that mandolin. So what I'm saying is you can affect tone by how you play, even what kind of strings you use. A brand new set of bass strings on an upright bass will sound brighter than a 10-year-old set. I can tell you that for a fact because I'm probably pushing 10 years on the set I have and I desperately want a new set new set so I can hear some of that brightness and that growl again. Anyway, I'm going to get me some strings here pretty soon. Think early. The earlier you can correct a problem, the better. That's true in health problems. It's true in financial problems. And it's true in the audio chain, the signal chain. Try to fix things at the root. If you have to fix them at the tail end, you may not be very successful. Okay, so enough about tone and EQ. Let's talk about another thing, which you see on a lot of audio mixers. And, and again, as of today, if you've been playing six months or a year, you may not be doing any. You, none of this may apply to you because you're still trying to work on your playing your roles and things like this. But just know it's coming because the minute you step foot on a stage... Or even if it's just a little coffee house and they have an open mic, the minute you step on a stage and play over a PA or the minute you want to record yourself, maybe you just want to record yourself and you get some software and you get a microphone and you start fooling around trying to learn a little bit about home recording so you can make some practice tapes. Or when you go into a professional studio, whenever you do any of those, these things are going to come up. This is going to be the real basic terminology that's getting thrown around. And by the way, let me mention that there are a whole lot of things that I am not going to talk about in this term terms that I'm not going to even venture down because they're simply not used very much in the bluegrass world. And one example of that is a term called phase shifting. 
or another one is flanging. Yes, Peter Wernick, you know, used a phase shifter on his banjo in uh, some of that hot rise stuff. Very cool sound, but it's not very common. So phase shifters, fuzz boxes, uh, you know, this kind of stuff is very prominent in the commercial music world of rock and roll and, you know, a lot of other styles. So I'm just talking about real simple stuff, things that would apply in the folk music, bluegrass, um, old time, and even in the, in the classical recording world where the idea is to reproduce or capture the sound as naturally as possible and still make it sound good, you know, reduce the noise and things like that and have a good tonal balance. Okay. Sooner or later, you're going to deal with this thing called balance and it, it's sometimes called panning and that is the left to right balance. Most audio recordings, commercial recordings are recorded in stereo. So there is a left channel and a right channel. It could be mono. This podcast, when I put it out, I put it out in mono. I take a stereo mix and I convert it to mono because it makes the file size much smaller. And just listening to one guy talk, it doesn't really matter if I'm in stereo or mono. I recorded this with a single microphone. So for all practical purposes, it's mono. So it's monophonic. But stereo is the standard for commercial recordings. But in the PA system world, stereo is not standard because if I run stereo at a concert and the left side of the room is getting a different signal from the right side of the room, you know, the people on the right may not hear the fiddle player. He sounds like he's a hundred yards away, you know, because that's where the, you know, in big settings, a lot of times they just run mono. And so if you want everybody in the room to be hearing basically the same thing, a lot of times you'll just run mono through your PA. But if you want to create a sense of space in a recording or in a concert setting where all audience members can hear both the left and the right speaker, let's say you're playing in a theater, 350 seats, you got a left speaker and a right speaker, you may want to use stereo panning to have more of the fiddle come out of the speaker on the side of the stage where he's positioned and the banjo players over the, on the right. So you have more of his signal come out of the right speaker because every seat in the house can hear both speakers, but in large concert venues, you know, 25,000 people in a pasture, if you may not hear both sides. So a lot of times in those situations, it's mono, but you're going to encounter that term balance or left, right panning. And, and the idea is, to think of the sound as representing a two-dimensional floor plan or map of the musicians or the sound that you're trying to create. So just picture a, a flat surface and just put your finger somewhere on Like if you had a piece of paper, just put your finger in the middle of the paper. You can move the sound to the left or to the right. That's panning. Or you can move it from to the front or to the back. You could do that two ways. 
if you increase the volume of that signal, you're going to make it seem like you're closer to the sound. Because if I hear a freight train blowing its horn and it's 10 miles, well, five miles away, let's say, it's not going to be as loud as if I'm 100 yards away or if I'm 10 feet away. So loudness, increasing the loudness, makes the listener feel like he's closer. So if you want to if you want to bring somebody forward in the mix, you turn up the volume. If you want to push them back in space, you turn it down. And you can move them left to right. So if I had five microphones set up on five musicians and they were set up in a semicircle, I could, with the left-right panning and the volume control, move them around. I could take the fiddle player from the left side and put him on the right and put him in the back corner. And I could take the dobro player and stick him right up front dead center. So you have that control. It's like physically moving the sound source by using panning and volume. There is another way you can also increase the perception of depth in the sound. You can do it by volume, but you can also do it by a thing called reverb which is short for reverberation. And here's how this basically goes down. If a train blows its whistle and I'm 50 feet from the train, you're going to hear a lot of the train horn, but not much of the echoes, the echoes of the horn bouncing off the courthouse and coming back to you because of that signal to noise ratio. The horn is extremely loud because I'm very close and the echoes have gone a half a mile and come back to my ear and they're very soft in comparison. So that's a very high signal to noise ratio. So I'm not hearing much of the reverberation. I'm mostly getting the direct signal and that makes you feel like you're close to the sound source. However, if I reduce the volume of the main signal, it tends to make it seem like it's farther away, but I can increase that illusion of distance by increasing the level of the reverberation. So artificial reverberation can be added into a signal. Obviously it's created naturally. If you stand on a stage and strum your banjo, you're going to hear it echoing around the room. Little rooms sound different than big rooms and cathedrals sound different. Well, a lot of audio mixers and effects processors have reverb units in them that simulate different sound spaces. So they'll be like, um, small room, large room. Uh, I, I, what I always remember on, on the one I have says cathedral, you know, and it's, you hear a lot of reverberation and then you can control that mixture of how much reverb with how much signal. And in doing so, what you're doing is creating an illusion of bringing that sound source forward or backwards on that plane. And then you got panning to move them left and right. And there, there's even some recordings where they, they will tinker with the left, right panning such that you put the signal on the left and you stick that signals reverb on the right because that's where it would naturally come from, you know? So you can even employ reverberation 
in your balance, left, right, and how much reverberation you hear on the other channel. Sometimes if you listen to a stereo recording on headphones and just take off the cup off of one ear and maybe, you know, Vassar Clements is tearing into his fiddle break and you're hearing it, but you realize all you're really hearing is reverb of his break. And then you put the other cup on the other ear and you don't hear any reverb. You just hear direct fiddle. And that's where they've, they've sent the reverb of the signal to the opposite side. Anyway, so that's what reverb and volume and panning can do. You can create a two-dimensional world where you can physically, you can simulate physical placement of sound sources. Okay, so now I was talking about reverb. Reverb is a complex series of, of echoes. It's not just one echo. And sometimes people confuse the term reverb and echo and also delay. And I'm, I want just to help you understand the difference between reverb, echo, and delay. Let's begin with delay. Delay is simply taking the signal and moving it in time. Just holding on to it and releasing it slightly later. That would be delay. You would think, now why would I want to do that? And quite frankly, there are very few reasons to do it. Because if you just delay the signal, you're going to be out of time with the rest of the players. So it's not usually used that way. What they do is they add delay. So you keep your original signal and you just throw a little delay on top of it. So what you're hearing then is an echo. So that's what an echo is. An echo is a delayed signal mixed back in with the original signal. So just uh, that's kind of splitting hairs, but just delay is simply moving things later in time. And an echo is to hear it mixed with the original signal. Now there is a place where delay is used within live sound reproduction. And that is to try to get all the speakers in a big facility synced up together. And let's say you got speakers on the stage and then you got speakers halfway back. Well, the people sitting in the back of the room, I mean, way back there, 150 yards away from the stage, they get the signal, they get the, the sound wave from the stage later than they get the signals from those speakers that are closer to them. So they can put delay on those outbound speakers so that they line up in time with the stage stuff. And, and that is used in huge, large venues. Now, if you've ever, ever gone to a baseball game and you hear the, the PA announcer and he's, you know, announcing, you know, Joe Smith at bat and, and, you, and you just hear this crazy series of echoes and you almost can't understand them because that sound is coming out of 80 speaker horns spread all around this, this, this stadium and you're getting all of them, but they're all coming to you at different times and it just becomes a muddy mess. You could using delay tweak all of those signals. So delay them so that they all arrive at your seat, you know, section 
221, seat 12. You could adjust all those speakers so that they all arrived at your seat at the exact same instant, and it would sound great. However, it wouldn't work for the guys on the other side of the stadium and the, the lady sitting down front by the dugout, you know. So they just simply can't do it. There are too many speakers, and you can't you can't please everybody is what I'm saying. But anyway, that is one way that delay is used. So just remember, delay is simply literally just delaying the signal, just putting it on pause and sending it slightly later, a couple of milliseconds maybe later. An echo is used to refer to putting that delay back in with the signal so you hear both. And echo, also you can have multiple echoes. You could have it repeat and you could have it get softer and softer and softer. You know, five repetitions of the echo. And so an echo control will have, you know, the time delay and how strong that is in relation to the original signal and how many times you want it to repeat and how rapidly do you want it to taper off, if at all. You might want it to echo forever, you know. If, you know, if you're doing some uh, dance mixes or something, you might, that might be your thing. But reverb is, is sort of a simulated series of echoes that are sort of random in nature. And, you know, you might say an echo algorithm that makes it sound like you're in the library, you're in the bathroom, you're in a church and so on. So people have tinkered around with how much echo and for how long and how much delay and all, and they've come up with these settings like cathedral and reverb is that it's a whole bunch of multiple echoes just to simulate real spaces. Now let me, before I leave reverb and echo, let me just caution you about using it in live performances. It's very useful in recording because it, it, brings back a sense of space to the recording because to keep that signal to noise ratio down or, you know, maximized for most signal, less noise, you try to minimize echoes, reflected sounds while you're recording that signal. So, you know, a very dead, quiet place is a great place to record that maximum signal. But then it sounds like every, you know, everything's, there's no life to it because we don't hear sounds in that environment very often. So on recordings, they will add back reverb to try to give it a sense of space again and, you know, put those echoes in artificially later. Because if the echoes come in during the initial recording, you can't remove them. So you, you start with a very dry signal and you'll hear that term. It's dry or wet. A wet signal is going to have a lot of reverb and echoes and delays and things like that. So it's a wet signal or it's a dry signal. But in live performance, a lot of times people want to add reverb. Maybe to everything, but you have to remember that the room itself or the facility or the area that you're, you know, broadcasting your signal th with the main speakers into already has reverberation characteristics. 
So are you really helping the situation? In other words, if you're, if you set up your PA in a cathedral, you know, the guy in the middle of the room is going to hear a cathedral sound. You don't need to add it in. It could just muddy it up and make it into a mess. So I would just say, you know, in live performance, be cautious with the overuse of reverb. Um, our practice was to employ a little bit of reverb in the vocals, especially in the harmony vocals and almost zero reverb in any of the instruments and especially none in the bass. Cause you want to muddy up a bass, just start slapping some reverb onto that bass signal. It's going to get muddy real fast. I'm not saying it's never done in recordings, but in live performance, you typically use a pretty dry signal and rely on the actual physical space to provide the reverberation. You know, that natural reverb is generally going to sound better than false, um, you know, electronically created reverb. Although you can play with it and find what sounds the best to you if you like it. But I can tell you, you cannot tell from up on the stage. You know, you've actually got to go out there and sit and listen. So having a good sound man that's out there in the middle of the room, you know, with good ears, he can say, well, you know, is that too much reverb? Is that not enough? You know? So, you know, in bluegrass, we're always tr striving for that really natural sound, but there really is no natural sound. It depends on where you hear it. You know, if I'm, if you set up and you do a concert in a cave, like, like they do down in Alabama, that's going to have a different sound than if you're out in a cow pasture or in a nice theater with carpeting and so on. So I would just say, remember that reverb is an, is a natural effect and an artificial effect. So just, you know, use it carefully. I, I, I will also say this. There are a lot of classic bluegrass recordings that employ lots of reverb and echo, uh, slapback echo. You go back and listen to some of that flat and scrug stuff or, um, some of the early Jim and Jesse stuff. There was a time period where it became very popular to, to put a lot of that on the recordings. It's becoming less so today. All right. The next thing I want to talk about is compression. Now we talked about volume already, and that's the, the overall strength of the signal or the loudness of the sound. So, Sometimes you'll hear the term compression thrown around. And let me just tell you exactly what it is. If you have a sound signal or sound wave, be it a physical wave or, well, let's stick to the electric version of the wave, a varying voltage being sent down a wire at close to the speed of light and you're processing that signal and amplifying that signal and using that signal to drive speakers. Ultimately you can graph the changes in voltage on a two dimensional chart of up is louder and down is softer. Your sound signal, my voice going into this microphone is producing an electrical voltage in the wire that is varying up and down over time. So that's the sound wave and pretty much all sound recorders today, even the little voice recorder that comes on your iPhone shows the waveform, you know, the resulting waveform of, 
the what is being recorded. That is a volume level changing over time. From the very softest or no sound to the loudest sound recorded or sent down a, down a signal path, that's called your dynamic range. How soft does it go? How loud does it get? That's the dynamic range. If you compress a signal, you reduce the dynamic range. So you could say, in essence, I've making, I'm making the loud stuff a little softer, and I'm making the soft-sounding stuff a little louder. So you're, that's what they mean by the word compression. Compressing the dynamic, the dynamic range. More compression, less dynamic range. No compression, maximum dynamic range. And you might think, well, dynamic range is, I want a lot of dynamic range. I want to be able to go from really loud to really soft. And that's good. But let's say you, you're a bass player and you're playing your old 49K bass and you play the G string and you play the D string. But the D string always seems louder than, than the G string. And why is that? I don't know. And I don't mean all K basses do that. I'm just using this as a fictitious example. Every bass player has, has felt this at times that sometimes there's just certain notes that just kind of project more. And it's because of the physical resonance of the bass. And, you know, there is no perfect instrument. All instruments are going to project certain notes more easily, more efficiently than other notes. So if you have maximum dynamic range from loud to soft, you're going to hear those volume differences easier. So I could play a really loud note on the bass followed by an extremely soft note on the bass because I've got a lot of dynamic range and I'm not compressing the signal at all. But the banjo player over there, he might want to hear both notes. So when you play that one note and it's a lot softer in volume than the other note, which is really loud, he might prefer a more compressed sound where you've brought the low volume up and the higher volume down and then just adjusted the that reduced dynamic range compressed signal to his preference as far as how loud the overall signal is. That's how compression can really be useful in a bluegrass setting, especially on bass. Because sometimes certain notes just don't project and other notes project too much. And of course, playing technique has a lot to do with this. You can hit a note too softly. You can hit a note too hard. And fingered notes sometimes will project less than an open string. You know, just the length of the string, you have less mass. You know, if you get halfway up the neck, you're, there's less mass. So you might get a lower volume out of that than you do out of those open strings. So what I'm saying is compression can be very useful in the bluegrass realm for taming bass signals. And that was the only way that I used a compressor for 25 years in live performance settings. And that is, I always put our bass player, I would run his signal through a, a compressor 
and compress it slightly. Some. And it just helped even out the volume. It's like an automatic volume control, you might say. You know, you hit a note a little soft, it comes out a little louder. And you hit one a little too loud, it comes out a little softer. So a little bit of compression can be really useful on a bass. You can do the reverse of compression, and that is expanders. You can expand a signal. You know, let's say you recorded something that had very little dynamic range. There was, you know, it was the signal just isn't very big. Well, you can increase the dynamic range by doing the reverse of compression, and that's expansion. There aren't a lot of, you know, great uses for that in live performance that I've discovered. But, but what I'm saying is most compressors well, can actually behave as expanders, too. And another way that I have used compressors over the years is I always carried a four-channel compressor. So I actually had four separate discrete compressors within my stack of PA gear. One of them was dedicated to the bass. And I tweaked that just to kind of even out the volume level. The other two, I, I, round, I ran the entire PA signal that was going out to the house through one of those compressors. But I didn't really compress the signal. I used it as a limiter because a compressor can be used sort of as a safety valve depending upon how you set it up. And there, I'm not going to get into the, the various settings um, with compressors in this because you really need to look at the instruction manual for your compressor. But I can tell you that, that as a general rule, a compressor you have a, a control called threshold. So you can set how loud of a signal comes through here before I begin to compress it. So you can, you can monkey around with the threshold. You can also adjust what's known as attack time. How soon does the compressor engage and begin to alter the signal? So if you were using a compressor on a snare drum and it, has a very rapid attack time or a mandolin chop, you would need a very short attack time. You better have it things short so that the compressor will do something to the first few milliseconds of the sound wave. If you have it very long, a very long attack time, that chop may be over and done with before the compressor wakes up and starts compressing. So you can, you can adjust the attack time. You can obviously adjust how much compression is applied. Are you really going to squash it or just a little? So there's the compression ratio. And then there's the release time. Like how long until I quit compressing? You know, the, the compressor just wants to know, what do you want me to do here? Do you want me to act immediately? And how strongly should I compress? And then should I just keep compressing a while or should I just turn back off instantly? So those are the settings, you know, threshold, attack time, ratio, and release time. That's the little knobs on the compressor. Well, you can adjust those to act as a protective device for your tweeters. Because if some Joe Blow snatches a cord out of your snake or out of the back of a microphone or starts flicking a switch on a microphone, or something else goes wrong and a huge voltage spike comes through your PA and goes charging towards your tweeters, it can burn out your tweeter. 
super high uncontrolled feedback can do that too, which, you know, what sooner or later is going to happen, but a compressor with a really, really super short attack time set for a very high threshold. Like it's not going to do anything until you hit like plus 12 DB. You know, when, when you're the, when the meters are pegged, it's going to engage just before that point and it's going to compress a lot. So you want to save those tweeters. So what I'm saying is a compressor will often be sold under the name compressor slash limiter. So you can, you can use a compressor as a limiter. And that was the only way I used them. I used those other two, um, you know, compressor three and compressor four. One was just to protect the main speakers from insane spikes. And the other one did the same for the monitors. So I'm just using those two compressors as peak limiters just to save those expensive speakers and repair bills. So that that's the basics here. You know, there, there are a whole lot of other effects and, and maybe I'll do an episode. I've done a whole lot of home recording and, you know, created demos. We've even, you know, created albums, multi-tracking done just all kind of stuff. And I, some of you may be interested in home recording. And if you get into that sort of thing and start monkeying around with the software and make a little test recordings, you're going to be faced with a bewildering array of effects. If you go, like if you pull up, there's a, there's a program called audacity, which I'm using right now to record this. And if just click on effect and read that menu. And there's going to be a whole lot of things in there you have never heard about. And I've just been talking about a few of those that really apply to the bluegrass world of live performance and of, you know, creating those natural sounding home recordings, demos and things like that. Anyway, I do encourage you to, to don't be afraid of these things and tinker around with them. One of the, I have a number of books that I've studied about this stuff over the years and books aside, sometimes the best, um, learning materials are the manuals for the machines themselves. You know, if you've got a, uh, some sort of recording device, like a, an old Tascam four track, or I, I use for many years, a boss BR eight digital eight track recorder, two tracks in eight tracks out. It had all this stuff built into it, all kind of multi-effects processors. And that half-inch thick manual taught me an awful lot about these things like compression, delay, echo, reverb, and a whole lot of other things, which I didn't use because I'm not a rock and roller. But, you know, I've got other books, too. I, I used a book, and I still recommend it. It's getting a little bit out of date, but it may have been updated, called Practical Recording Techniques by Bruce and Jenny Bartlett excellent book to get your feet wet about the basics of recording. And a lot of this stuff carries over into the live performance world too. I mean, if he's, if, if they are talking about, um, microphone cables and, you know, the different types of, you know, balanced versus unbalanced and well, you use those at every PA gig and you also use them in recording. So a lot of this stuff, you know, there's a huge overlap. If you had a Venn diagram of, you know, audio technology and one circle represents live performance and one represents recording, there's a huge overlap, but there are some differences as I've talked about some of them, like 
the being careful with reverb in a very reverberating type of uh, performance setting. Anyway, I hope you found this interesting. Once again, I, I don't claim to be the world's greatest technical expert on this thing. I will say that over the years, you pick up a little knowledge and a little knowledge can be dangerous. If you start um, thinking, you know, something, there's always a good chance you, you may only know about 5% of what could be known about the subject. So I really encourage you to use your knowledge that you gain about these sort of things like signal processing and audio terms and recording technology and Use it cautiously because there's always somebody out there that knows more about it than you do. And, you know, if you go into a recording studio and your band's going to cut a demo or something, that's probably not the time to engage with the engineer in lengthy discussions about, you know, the value of frequency based compression versus, you know, because he's on the clock, he's got a job to do and he's not running a school for you. So, Sometimes you just need to shut up and keep your eyes and ears open and listen and try to learn something, get you some books, do a little studying. And, you know, if you do want to learn about it, start doing it. That's, that's the best way to learn anything, including playing your instrument. Anyway, I have yacked long enough, but I hope you uh, enjoyed this. Even if you're like, oh, I'll never do any of that. You might, I encourage you to do it. Um, it's It's been one of the more fun things that I've done over the years is to tinker around with audio and sound recording. And it's it's sort of like making arrowheads because every, every recording and every live performance possibly could have been slightly better. So that means you got to do it again and you can never reach absolute perfection. But it is it is fun and it is deep. This this rabbit hole goes very deep. And it's one of those areas, too, an added benefit is that all of this stuff crosses over into other genres of music. So you can sit down and have a very productive discussion with a rock and roll musician about some of these things, you know, because they're doing a lot of the same kind of stuff. The end result may be quite different. But anyway, I hope you enjoyed this. Hopefully it was not too boring. And uh, once again, I appreciate everything. Appreciate everybody who supports the show in the various ways that I mentioned on practically every episode. But I appreciate you visiting BradleyLaird.com and doing whatever whatever suits you, whatever might help you. And to please tell your friends about the show and help spread the word. Thanks a lot, and I'll talk to you in the next episode. Oh, I thought I would do a little quick addendum and just give you a couple of examples of the things I was talking about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the old check one, two, three, check one, two, three. And now since we're mono here, I can't demonstrate panning, but I'm going to demonstrate adding reverb. So here is check one, two, three, with no reverb, I would call that dry. Now I'm going to do the same thing again and add in some reverberation, some artificial multiple echoes. Check, one, two, three. Check, 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 one, two, three. And now I'm going to put in a whole lot of reverb and have a very wet signal 
Here we go. Super heavy duty reverb. Check, check. One, two, three. Check, check, check. And here is just a single echo. Check, check. One, two, One, three. two three. That's an echo. Now, I, I can't really demonstrate a delay because if I do, you'll, you'll just hear it a few milliseconds later and it won't sound any, dif- any different. So skip over that. Here is um, compression. And, and I don't know if you'll be able to really tell this because I don't have a huge dynamic range in my voice. But what I'm going to do is talk very, very softly. I'm just going to barely talk. And then I'm going to talk a little louder and a little louder and a little louder. And now I'm going to do the same thing with some pretty heavy compression. So I'm talking very softly and I'm compressing it and I'm bringing it up in volume using compression. And I'm talking a little louder and a whole lot louder and getting really loud and boisterous. And so that was a compressed sound. Anyway, I just thought I might add those little tidbits in here at the end. Y'all take care and have fun twisting those knobs and playing with those settings.